Hello and welcome to Eco Justice Radio here on 90.7 KPFK. My name is J.P. Morris, and today we have an interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge. She'll be talking to Tina Nata, a Nati Poro Wahine and mother of two. Tina's work involves advocacy for environmental, indigenous, and human rights. This includes local, national, and international initiatives that highlight the role of settler colonialism in issues such as climate change and waste pollution. She also promotes indigenous conservation as the best practice for a globally sustainable future. Jessica will also be talking to Marcus Erickson, co-founder and research director for the Five Gyres Institute and author of Junkraft, Rise of Activism to Fight Plastic Pollution. I think you're going to enjoy this one. You're listening to Eco Justice Radio here on 90.7 KPFK. Listening to Eco Justice Radio on 90.7 KPFK. This is Jessica Aldridge from SoCal 350. Our show today is called Waste Colonization and Plastic Pollution The Social and Environmental Implications of Wasted Resources. On August 1st, 2018, we hit what is called Earth's Overshoot Day. This is the annual calculation that marks the date when we, all of humanity, have used more from nature than our planet can renew in the entire year. August 1st was the earliest it has ever been. The Earth provides resources that we as humans utilize. Everything that is provided to us by Earth has value. Nothing is waste. We are stuck in a perpetual motion of consuming and throwing away, consuming the value of goods and humans and throwing them away. When we talk about waste, we think of that which we dispose and recycle, but waste happens along the whole chain. For every ton of waste disposed downstream, I guess into our trash cans, there are 70 tons of waste created upstream, which also have negative environmental and social implications. Waste is a verb, not a noun. We can no longer waste the livelihood of our earth nor our sisters and brothers in order to consume more, be it oil at the pump or the coffee cup in our hand. Our guests today are working to change the narrative around waste, bring awareness to and fight against waste colonization, and create zero-waste solutions. Please welcome Tina Nata, the non-plastic Maori, and Marcus Erickson, co-founder of Five Gyres and author of the recent book, Junk Raft. Thank you both for being here today. Tina, I'm honored to have you here in the studio. I mean, you're, you're visiting from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, and Marcus, we've been longtime friends, I think almost 10 years. Yes, and, we have. Yes, and I admire your work and your, your unrelenting work in this area. So thank you both for being here today. Well, thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Yeah, so I just want to start out by giving our listeners just a little background about both of you. So we'll start with you, Tina. You're, you're helping to lead a national, I think, a national conversation around ocean plastic pollution in New Zealand. And I I would argue maybe the greater planet as well. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your organization and what personally led you to the work on plastic pollution? Sure. So um, I deliver uh, Indigenous environmental education in New Zealand uh, within our tribal territory. And uh, as a part of that work, I became aware of... um, uh, ocean plastics and, and what they were doing to our ocean environments and as ocean people we have a genealogical connection to the ocean 
uh, and to the creatures of the ocean. So it struck me very deeply uh, when I when I found out about the impacts of ocean plastics. Um, and I also became associated to the issue through being involved in a, a national organisation uh, that I'm still involved with and very proud to be associated with, which is um, Parakuri. And uh, as a member of the board on Parakuri and, and chair on Parakuri, we've worked with uh, now 266 communities across Aotearoa and continuing to work with them on their zero waste journey. And we've diverted uh, close to 250 tonnes of rubbish from landfill since we started in 2011. And we use Indigenous principles to embark on that journey uh, with those communities and, and help them along the way. So, yeah, and I'm, I'm still working very closely with them and, and with other partners like Greenpeace uh, to move um, our country and our Pacific region uh, towards a, a zero-waste space that looks after our ocean. It's so beautiful. Marcus, you have to follow that now. And... Uh, <laughs> So five gyres. Yes. So what is that? How did it originate? What are you working on? Um, so my wife, Anna Cummins, she and I, we began the organization together. Ten years ago, we recognized there was very little research being done on plastics in the oceans. There was some done by Captain Charles Moore. He's based in, Lo in uh, Long Beach, the Algolita Foundation. They found this garbage patch, which many of your listeners may have heard about in the Pacific. There was some work in the Atlantic. But nothing in the Western Pacific on the Japan side and nothing in the Eastern Atlantic by the Azores and the European side and nothing in the Southern Hemisphere in those oceans. So 10 years ago, we began the Five Gyres Institute to go visit each of these subtropical gyres, these swir swirling masses of ocean water that were just attracting plastic trash. And our, our idea is, our, our mission is science to solutions. So we did the science. We found lots of microplastics. When we went inland, like in the Great Lakes, we found these little plastic microbeads. Uh, and we, we found those came from facial scrubs and toothpastes. And we took our science. We published research papers on the occurrence of plastics in the environment and the harm they cause. And we found policy solutions. In 2015, President Obama signed the Microbead Free Waters Act. So we look for these solutions and find partners, hundreds of organizations, including the work of, uh, that Tina has done, finding those connections between the environmental harm that's done and the social injustice that are along the entire value chain of plastics, from extraction to the eventual pollution. And there are a lot of organizations, hundreds worldwide, in this powerful movement. And that, that brings me to a question for you, uh, Marcus. What Do we know the extent of plastic pollution in the ocean? Is there a, a qualitative you know, number? Is, is there something? How much plastic pollution is in the ocean? So there, there's been a lot of work. Uh, so we published a paper three years ago taking the work from seven, six or seven scientists combining all their ocean surface data. That means dragging a net. You count the particles and you say, oh, we have 10,000 particles per square kilometer in the middle of the Pacific. Do this thousands of times around the world and you get these oceanographic models. And the first evidence or the first estimate of, of plastics of all sizes in all oceans, we published this. It was 269,000 tons of trash uh, from 5.25 trillion particles floating alone. That was the first floating estimate. But what's interesting is that represents less than 1% of one year's production of plastic. The ocean surface isn't the final resting place for our trash. 
Oceans swirl it about, and it washes up on distant shores worldwide. And that, that you know, Tina, you're seeing that in your community. You're seeing that this, that the community's having to deal with all of this material that they're now having to figure out how to clean up or how to recycle or how to dispose of. And, you know, what what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, alongside um, Five Gyres, Marcus and Ada have come to um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and we have surveyed our beaches on both sides of the North Island. And what we found is even in, in communities who are doing absolutely everything that you are meant to do, and they've been doing it for you know, over 10 years now, they've really socialised and normalised the idea of being responsible with your waste and they've managed to close their landfill. And yet these communities had extraordinarily high levels of microplastics on their beach. So, you know, I guess it, that really is a testament to um, the upstream um, the upstream kind of causes of these issues and that if you're not going to be you, having um, industry and government come alongside to support the struggle, then you're still going to have people having to deal with the sins of others because the currents don't know, you know, who's doing the right thing and who isn't. So they'll, they'll just push the, the plastic up where it needs to go. So it really uh, is a testament, as I say, to some of those upstream solutions that are needed. And is this what is meant, or can you expand upon the concept of waste colonization? Sure. Um, so I, if if imperialism is really represented by this idea of another entity extracting and exploiting somebody else's resources for their gain, then certainly what we're looking at in terms of these packaging industries that create harm uh, is, is a kind of corporate imperialism and if colonisation is this process of oppression and coming into somebody's area uh, uninvited and, and impacting upon them in negative ways um, through this exploitation and extraction process then uh, what we're looking at in this process of waste uh, is, is a form of colonialism that Indigenous people are very familiar with. We've experienced this and fought this for you know, countless generations now, but it's just in this instance, in this context, taking the form of uh, hyper-consumerism and, and, and waste. Mm. Marcus, you and I were talking about earlier, all of us were, um, this concept that, you know, we as in the United States, just alone in the United States, we are supposed to be creating like on average 4.5 pounds of waste uh, per person per day. And then you put in the recycling rate and it comes down to maybe three pounds per person per day. But, you know, when when do we say that this is not really the, the consumer's fault, that it's not about the waste that we're consuming, but, you know, where lies the responsibility for the business and and the manufacturer? Where is the corporate responsibility and the federal responsibility for for this waste getting out, so so they're not, you know, falling There's into this. There's a lot of this. interesting, interesting points there. So one is that, you know, recycling. We've been sold this myth that recycling is a solution. Yet in the United States, the EPA reports on what what gets made and how those materials flow through society. What gets recycled, considering all the plastic we make in the United States, less than ten percent. Now let that sink in for a second. So in 2013, EPA reported 9.2% of America's produced plastics makes its way to recycle centers. That is a dismal failure. But see, that failure, it, it really, it, it, it begins in, in this waste colonialization, which manifests itself in a linear economy where materials are extracted and all the profits are privatized. But as all those materials that are sold 
uh, manufactured in plastic, sold to the public, consumed, once they become waste, it becomes socialized. Companies, corporations socialize the externalities, and they expect you and I as taxpayers to pay for the landfills and the incinerators and the waste cleanup and all the harm to communities living near landfills in those, in those structures. We have to pay for it and live next to it. So that linear system, that is failing worldwide. Remote communities and island nations that, through globalization, were receiving goods who deserve the goods, they don't deserve to be sitting in mountains of packaging that has no plan for its return back to the system. Mm -hmm. So transitioning from a linear economy to a more circular economy where you design way up ahead in the process in the value chain, you design for that return back to the system to minimize the loss of the environment or the harm it might cause. That's a transition happening now, and corporations are fighting it. And mm -hmm. that's the immorality of, of, of what we're trying to overcome now is it gets to a circular economy that benefits everyone. And I want to say, you know, for many Indigenous peoples, we were already living that circular economy before the current system came in as well. So for us, it's really about a remembering of the place that we have been, you know, and for countless generations, and a return back to processes that were often in place only one or two generations ago. And in some, in many of our island um, nations are still in place, so we just need to really return back to that. But exactly what Marcus is saying, we never invited them and their waste to come into our bodies and interrupt our uh, ability to reproduce and interrupt our ability to live healthy lifestyles. We never invited these companies in to disrupt our food systems and to deplete our food sources that we have relationships with and we didn't invite them to come in and interrupt our weather patterns and our cycles the way that they're doing. And that really is what, why it's the epitome of colonisation for us. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Ecojustice Radio on 90.7 KPFK. We are here with Tina Nata, the non-plastic Maori, and Marcus Erickson, co-founder of Five Jars and author of the recent book, Junk Raft. So we've been talking about waste colonization and the issues that um, are literally washing up onto our shores and the shores of islands and communities all over the world but there have been some major successes recently in New Zealand around waste and even oil drilling, which is where our plastic comes from. Uh, Tina, can you speak to some of these great successes? Sure. Well, I mean, I should say that, you know, we have a long history of protest at sea and, and protesting oil and protesting nuclear weapons as well in Aotearoa. We like to try and punch above our weight when it comes to resistance. We have been under a very conservative government up until very recently. So last year we uh, had the Labour government come in with uh, a new Prime Minister, uh, Jacinda Ardern. And uh, up in, so for the years preceding that, our people have largely been engaged in fighting Fighting um, the uh, fighting the onslaught of the oil industry away from our shores, and so that has happened across the island in different places. And for us on the east coast, uh, it came in the form of um, uh, first Petrobras and then Statoil and Chevron, who sent the Amazon Warrior Seismic Survey vessel uh, to uh, survey along our eastern seaboard. So we have just over 80 hapu, 80 sub-tribes along the eastern seaboard and when we found out that that's what they were doing and what seismic surveying does, it sends this seismic pulse out every 10 seconds, which is uh, second only to an underwater nuclear 
uh, detonation. And so uh, we found out about the significance of what was happening and we travelled a lot and went to a lot of meetings and managed to get all 80 hapū to unanimously agree to oppose their presence and activity off our east coast. We then uh, took that petition to our government, to the Norwegian government as the majority shareholders of Statoil. We sent it to the heads of Chevron and then we got on our traditional ocean voyage in canoe and we went out to the boat itself and read them their trespass orders on our ocean territories and told them to get out and that they weren't welcome. And so they left not long after that. And for us, it's always been this process of just trying to stave them off and and we call it the mosquito strategy. It's We're only tiny, but if you've ever tried to sleep with a mosquito buzzing around your ear, it's kind of hard. So we've just thought if we can be the most annoying we can be with our, with our vessels, with our families, with our signs, then we'll do that and make it a hostile environment for the oil industry. And we managed to stave them off enough and make a big of a noise along with our relations and resistance efforts and partners to get our government to ban oil of all offshore oil drilling from from this point on they're not passing out any more permits for oil drilling so we just have to see the current permits through and try to keep them off for that long and we have a light at the end of our tunnel now and for Aotearoa that's huge because we, we are a small landmass, but we have the fourth largest EEZ uh, you know, exclusive economic zone or marine territory in the world so um, we're actually in marine sense a superpower so that's a big chunk of the ocean now where there will be no more drilling um, and then, that, that's fantastic. I just yeah. want to say that is absolutely amazing. Congratulations! Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a emotional thing to even think about for us. Um, and so, and then of course we've been really pushing this issue with with plastics for quite a few years now. It was a wonderful opportunity when we had the five giants come and join us in February to try and generate a national a national discussion and try and just nudge our government over the line for a national bag ban, uh, which we. We did through generating that discussion and through uh, presenting the Greenpeace petition to government, which had 64,000 signatures from New Zealanders to ban plastic bags, um, and it was handed over. And then uh, last week, the New Zealand government announced that uh, we will have a national bag ban. So we're just going into consultation now around what that looks like. So we're really happy with those two wins. Really big successes. And you also have a plastics uh, pollution strategy, That's is that right. correct? Yeah. And so those were our two main outcomes that uh, Marcus, Anna and myself uh, were aiming for. One was a plastic bag ban and the other was a national strategy on plastic pollution reduction. And so, again, we're working with um, Greenpeace and the drafting of that strategy, which should get launched next week. Fantastic. Mm. That's so exciting. I love hearing the success stories. Yeah. I think all of us do. Yeah. It gives us hope and That's right. you know, energy. And you've got to celebrate the wins. Yes, you do. And Marcus, I want to talk about some solutions here. We, you know, we um, sometimes people think like, oh, this thing, we can trade it off for this other thing and we can get rid of waste. Like, why are we not using plant-based bioplastics? We can trade that one-off solution for this one-off solution or should we be trawling the oceans and pulling plastic out of the oceans and turning it into shoes or taking plastic out of communities and, and setting up uh, small entrepreneur open source applications where they're melting it, shredding it and turning it into plastic. But aren't there some health implications and also environmental implications that come with just trading it off for some other solution that still is waste? 
Yeah, and I, and I, I think you have to you have to look at all of the solutions that are put out there. And every once in a while, the, the media will 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 have a lot of news stories about you know bugs that eat plastic, some worm that's eating polystyrene, or this new bioplastic cup that degrades miraculously when it touches the ocean. Or you can make this fancy chair out of waste trash on the beach, melt it and extrude it and make uh, chair legs. All these things I've heard. Ocean cleanup, big giant nets in the ocean, um, zero waste cities. You get all of these stories. But when you look at them and you try and be very objective and you ask yourself a few important questions, which one's affordable? Which one can a community actually put in place? Can Can a community purchase a big incinerator? And what are the other byproducts of that, the costs and the, some of the, the, the human health issues around those, environmental consequences. So there's affordability. Then there's the, part of that scalability is, is there a stakeholder buy-in? Do people agree with this strategy? Um, is it scalable? Um, does it address the harm directly? When you ask these questions, things begin to fall off the, off the map. Like making something out of beach trash is kind of a minor uh, little story. Plastic eating bacteria, I don't want to release a bunch of GMO bacteria into our oceans. They'll eat boats and docks as well. So what really makes sense, what rises to the top when you evaluate these, is the zero-waste model for communities. When a community, and this has been demonstrated thousands of times around the world in small communities, taking hold of their waste management and saying, let's get good at diverting uh, compostable or biodegradable materials, food scraps, and yard trimmings, and, and not bioplastic, bio, quote exactly, unquote. Exactly, not <laughs> yeah. bioplastics. That's a whole other conversation. They don't work. Um, and you, when you get good at diverting those and get good at recycling the true recyclables um, and the rest of residuals, what's left over, you can then ask, do we need these disposable diapers or chai, chai cups or a sachet package? Do they fit a circular economy? If they don't, find a way to get rid of them. When communities do that, they can reduce the residuals down to like 10 or 20% and divert the rest in responsible ways. That is so much more affordable and scalable. It meets the harm head on. It diverts some of that social injustice from waste. It, it saves the environment. So zero waste communities is right there on top of a scalable, truly global solution. And Tina, what is your take on solutions to this ever-growing mountain of waste that... Um, of wasting uh, that we have and, and for the plastics pollution movement. Oh, you know, I think I, I just can't support enough what Marcus was just saying around that this needs to be a, a community solution. We need it to be, uh, you know, a mind shift and a heart shift. It needs to be, we certainly need it to be in our education systems. We need to be growing new generations of uh, conscious consumers and people who are connected to the implications of their decisions. So, you know, any kind of solution that really whips your waste away from in front of your eyes is not really, in, in my view a long-term solution the issue that we have at the moment and the sickness that we're suffering from is one of disconnectivity so we really need everything that we can um, that we can get to reconnect us back to the implications of our systems especially the food systems that we're connected to Um, and, and that involves you know, everything infrastructural and decision-making and, uh, as I said, and educational sol- solutions as well. But certainly we're not going to industrialise our way out of the solution, uh, out of the problem. And uh, we're not going to get there by finding nice, clean things that will whip our sins away from, from our eyes as soon as we've committed them. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be so simple, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be? Um, 
And this is not a simple solution. Uh, so before we, we have a, a couple more minutes left here, so please tell our listeners how they can find both of your work and your organizations and support your efforts. Sure. So the Parakore uh, website is um, P-A-R-A-K-O-R-E dot Māori dot org. So M-A-O-R-I dot org. Um, and you, so you'll find us if you just Google us. Uh, but you can find my blog on uh, nonplasticmaori.wordpress.com. Um, and that's probably the best way to find me, Marcus. And us, it's the, the Five Gyres Institute at fivegyres.org. It's number five, G-Y-R-E-S dot org. And we're one of many organizations across California pushing for zero waste. You're seeing more and more bans on the single-use disposable plastics. And that's a movement happening here in California, here in, here in L.A., to push us toward that circular economy. And Marcus also has a new book that he just put out called The Junk Raft and a movie that is associated with that as well. So make sure that you check that out and go to the go to the store and pick up a book, buy it locally. Uh, so thank you, Tina and Marcus, for the enlightening conversation on plastic pollution and waste colonization. It has definitely been an honor to have you both in the studio today. Um, thank you. You have been listening to Tina Nata, the non-plastic Mari, and Marcus Erickson, co-founder of Five Gyres and author of the recent book, Junk Raft. Thank you for joining EcoJustice Radio on 90.7 KPFK. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for our show. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio here on 90.7 KPFK. I want to thank Marcus and Tina for coming on to the show. Eco Justice Radio is brought to you by SoCal 350 and KPFK. Executive producer Mark Morris, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge, and original music by Javier Cadre. My name is JP Morris, and until next time, remember the power is yours. Mm-hmm.